0: I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. This program is part two of the four-part interview with The Stig from BBC's Top Gear, Mr. Perry McCarthy. During this episode, I ask him some soul-searching questions, and at one point, you'll hear Perry become completely overwhelmed with emotion. As he sheds a tear when he recalls a time when he was crippled with fear when he was driving on the racetrack. He then goes on to explain how he drove back to the pits, gathered his courage, and suppressed his fear to attain what he describes as the greatest achievement of his life. Let's go over and listen to that program right now with Perry McCarthy.
1: can't talk about being Stig. I couldn't let anybody know uh, because I'd shaken hands on that. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. But of course, once I came out of being Stiggy, yeah, sure. Then I was able to um, exploit having had the fortune to be the first Stig um, on quite a number of levels.
0: Right. Now let's talk about life before the Stig. Becoming a racing driver, entering Formula One. What you went through in your racing career to me was... Frankly, unbelievable. Your book, your autobiography, Flat Out, Flat Broke, was first released in 2002. It's now been re-released because it's in the top 20 motor racing books of all time. Congratulations, Perry. Well done indeed. That's a magnificent achievement. The book is a great read, and if I may say so, an emotional Roller coaster. I Thanks. was up and down on every page. And I'm thinking, "Oh no, not again!" So flat out obviously refers to the racing cars, and flat broke refers to your financial status at the time. Tell me about those times and just how hard they were.
1: Flat out isn't just about being in a race car; it's an attitude, and the attitude was to be in the race car. And so I was always flat out trying to find a way to actually survive it financially and try and put the finances together or any engineer any kind of deal in any way, shape or form to make sure I was in a racing car. Because as soon as these wheels go around, it's costing somebody somewhere money. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there's an old expression, you go as fast as your checkbook. You know, if you're in a car where you've got no money and you're giving away engine rebuilds or you haven't got the new set of tyres or haven't been testing, you know, you're giving advantages away all the time. So it was just spent just trying to be on an even playing field, at least a couple of times. Once I made the decision to be a race driver, it was um, you know, I was at college and I hadn't really started following motor racing that much. Uh, and then a set of circumstances came up where I went to Brands Hatch. Um, the chief instructor had heard about my road driving and actually come out to get me. So that's unusual. I took him around, and and that was it. You know, it's uh, he actually had been there goodness over 25 years and he said i was the best he'd ever seen so i thought he's obviously a man of uh, high intelligence substance and, st- and taste <laughs> um so i thought it was only rude not to then try and become a racing driver
0: absolutely
1: so then i started finding out what was necessary and it needed money so i went to work on north sea Orics for two years to get the money together um so i had enough money to enter motor racing but by that age i was like you know nearly 21 So you've got little Max Verstappen winning Grand Prix at like 17, 18 now. Uh, I was like 21 before I even started. So I had to get a move on. There was no time to waste saying, okay, the people I'm against have been in motor racing for years. They've been in karting. They've done this. So off the street, I came straight into Formula Ford. And the attitude was to be fastest. So in my first six races, I set three pole positions. But straight into Formula Ford Championship. Um, but nobody was worried about me because they knew I'd smash it into the wall, and they were quite right. In fact, for the first seven races, uh, my nickname was Perry McCartwheel. Um, but then I managed to keep knocking on doors because I'd spent my O-Rig money by then. But I'd used any success I had knocking on doors, doing this, putting the money together, and then came into the '83 season and blitzed there. Um, so, as I say, it was necessary. I had to do it because it, if I had finished. Third or fourth, "Oh, it's only Perry's second year." you'll get, "No, no, no, this is about now. There's no money to have learning years and learning that and take it easy. The desperation was already there. It's here, it's now. Do it, or fold your arms and see you later." Mm-hmm. That's what it was. So it was keep going, but the first race of the following year, a really big crash, and that put me out for a year. we were broken back. Then I returned again to Formula Ford, which I didn't want to be in, And now I was disinterested. And with only about 40% of the budget necessary. So it wasn't going well. Uh, you know, it's, it's now 1985. I'm now 24 years old with no career, no job, nothing, and about to be a failed racing driver. And then I just kept phoning up, kept going to see people, asking people who knew people and new people, who do you know, who do you know, how can I get in there, will they see me, that, that, that. And finally I got this company called to White Inn, and they gave me the big break to go into Formula 3. And that's where things really started changing for me because I was able to go very quickly, very quickly. Mm.
0: What kept you going?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I just could not understand failure. I couldn't understand it. I could not understand how anybody could be faster than me. Um, So, you know, it pays dividends to be completely stupid sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Because... You know, that was how I felt. And it was that, just saying, look, I know this can be done. I guess part of the challenge was to turn around and say that I could do it as well, that I could find a way, that I just said, this is what I'm going to do, and I will not be stopped. So it was almost like a calling without sounding religious. But, you know, when I did look around, I thought, well, what else am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And then when I certainly looked back to my past, I'm thinking, well, look, I tell you, Rejection was beginning to get, become my middle name. Yeah. You know, I understand no in 37 different languages when you're looking for sponsors. It's the tenacity that was there, but it was that same tenacity on the Ulrichs that was 12, 14 hours a day, shot blasting, welding, scaffolding, carrying, lugging stuff. So I guess that's, that's been in me from, from being a child. But this was a way to air that, if you like. It was a way to direct it. And I guess the motor racing had all these ingredients that I fancied. High speed, thrill, challenge, danger, achievement, um, cars, you know. And it just ticked all the boxes. And I thought, well, what else do I want to do? I didn't want to do anything else. So I filmed. there was, I'm not clear how much bravery there was in the whole thing. It was just like, I've got to do this. I was passionate about it. actually still am. But when I look back to the stunts I was pulling to survive and just stay around and everything else, I don't know, I do look back at Perry back then and think, well done, mate, actually. You know? (laughs) Because you were a bloody idiot. But you you did stay at it.
0: Good. Would you describe yourself as a salesman who can drive or a driver who can sell?
1: Neither. Um, I think the... All I was trying to do was talk to people and just say, look, these are some of the things that can benefit your company if you want to be involved. These are some of the ways to use it. Um, I know where I'm going. Do you want to come? And that was basically it. Now, you know, I'm I'm probably a chatty bloke. Yeah. But I'll guarantee you one thing. I've never actually begged or yearned for something to, to somebody else. I put a deal out there. If they want to do it, great. If they don't, no problem, you know. But that's, that's. I guess there's a bit of pride going on there. Is that, you know, even when I had no money, there's no way I'd even be talking to friends saying, oh, can you give me any money? I might have asked sometimes, hey, "Lend us Sundry quid, you'll have it back by Wednesday with another five or another ten. or thought, you know, that kind of thing. No problem, that's a deal, you know. Yes. But I was never looking for charity. However... There were some times when some people came up and just said, hey, listen, you know, we, this is no good for us, but I actually, we really want to help you. And then you take it and you just say, thank you very much indeed. And make sure you desperately try to do something back for them. Mm-hmm. Because I hate, hate being on the back foot. Mm-hmm. I don't like owing anybody anything financially or indeed morally. So I always wanted to make sure that somebody got something back from it and had a bloody good time if they're coming with me.
0: Yeah, so integrity is
1: important Massively, absolutely massively. That's, uh, I kind of, yeah, I, I'm concerned that I'm blowing my own horn here, but actually integrity is massive to me. If I shake hands on anything, that hand stays shook. You know, that's it. That's the deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- that's actually a trait I've found in lots of successful people. The two words you mentioned, passion, mm.
1: but it must be fueled by integrity.
0: Not anything at any cost.
1: I felt the same way on the track, is that there's some shenanigans that I see now with people weaving and taking people off the track, and I would never, ever do that. Yeah, I'd be hard. I wouldn't leave them a lot of space, but they'd have space. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't try and take somebody out. Absolutely no way. Never. I wouldn't completely drive somebody off the track. Absolutely no way. However, if they started it, (laughs) right... If they started it, yeah. oh boy, yeah, they would get it back. But winning without integrity, 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 <laughs> uh, winning without integrity, winning without style would have meant nothing to me. Sure. Nothing. I completely
0: understand that. So, Mr. McCarthy, you've had your fair share of car crashes, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> More than most, I would say. So, here's my question. What happens in your mind after
1: you've had a serious crash? I had, um, there were a bunch of crashes in Formula Ford, and there was that one that put me out for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But all I wanted to do was get back in the car. Uh, I had one situation in Formula 3 once where we'd been testing development suspension and it collapsed. And that was a very, very big crash that um, had broken my crash helmet and I like, had blood all over my face when I got out of the car I hurt my hand and the car was smashed to pieces so there was another car ready for me in three three days time four days time now I had taken a blow on the head nowadays you probably wouldn't be let back in the car again this one had a new development suspension and we were there the last shunt was at Silverstone this one we're now at um, Snatterton and I've gone out done one two laps come up to the Russell chicane which back then was an incredibly daunting corner taken flat out and as I turned in click click that's it uh, well the next thing I remember I was like laying out the car uh, the car had, the, the rear suspension had collapsed uh, it hit the barrier so hard it had taken the support and all the concrete in the ground out the car flew through the air barrel rolled smashed to pieces and I'm unconscious and so they got dragged me out of that uh, because track time's money, they need to let the others go. <laughs> um, and then three days later was what we called the Cellnet Super Prix, which is the biggest race of the year. And I went out and I'd now taken another major hit to the head and I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. My head was not working properly. Um, and there's, again, as I say, nowadays you wouldn't have been allowed to sit in the car, letting them go out after those two crashes. Sure. And I went out for the first lap and... I couldn't work it out. And I was doing, like, 50 miles an hour in a Formula 3 car. looks like a Formula 1, you know? Mm -hmm. It was going as fast as a milk flow. It's like I was scared. And I pulled into the pits, and I didn't know what was going on. So I was frightened, and I was also frightened about being frightened. Um, I couldn't put anything together. And I was thinking, well, I'm finished. If I can't go quick. And then something I'm kind of, um, you know... We've talked in what are your proudest moments, et etc. et cetera. Maybe this is one of my proudest moments in life, actually. You know, apart from anything to do with the wife and the kids, et cetera. And I, I sat in the car and just said to myself, what do you want to do? If you want to be a race driver, you've got to go fast. And, and you know, the team had stayed, stood away from me. They knew to just not come near me. I just waved them away and I sat there just thinking, desperately trying to put my head together. And we had just a few minutes of, uh, sorry, the Selnut Super Prix at Brands Hatch, we're just literally a few minutes of qualifying remaining when I told him to start the car up, and I was kind of feeling better. And I, I went out, did a lap, came through, set the lap, put it on pole position. Wow, what happened? Well, then I came back in, and do you know, I hate telling this story because there's something, um, there's something deep inside me which triggers the same response every time. Uh, it's. I just it all kind of comes back. It's a little bit weird to be quite frank. So sorry, but uh, yeah, I got out of the car and just was crying uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now yeah, I'm like by this time I'm 25 year old. a bit of a hard Mm up Essex boy, so it's not really normal for me to get out of a car and start start crying, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't stop it because I suddenly I'd had just that moment of holding it all together, and now I didn't even know where I was again. It was. So it was really dangerous what I was doing there, but I, I did it. I'd overcome what was absolute fear and what was absolute see you later career to, to then actually put it on pole position. So, uh, yeah, it was a big, big moment. It just shows what the old brain bots can do sometimes, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely.
0: Well, that leads me nicely onto the next question, actually. You kind of answer it in your book when you refer to a conversation you had with Ayrton Senna. Tell me about fear and how do you deal with it?
1: Well, it's, you know, I I think Ayrton's, if I've quoted him on this, is that Ayrton used to say, look, you know, we all have fear, um, but you have to squeeze it down. You have to squeeze the fear down and you have to be in control of that fear. Because, you know, without fear, it's, it's, you know, it's anybody surviving without fear, you're probably not going to be quick uh, as a lap time because you'll be making too many mistakes. You know, you've, you've got to have that judgment and linked in with, a, with you know, a bit of trepidation, maybe not fear, but some trepidation, which will escalate in torrential rain where you can't see anything to maybe your heart beating through your chest because you've still got to keep your foot down. But that's what Alan used to say, is that you've got to squeeze the fear down and be in control of the fear. And I, I totally agree with that. And I personally believe that any race driver out there who says that they have no fear is either too stupid to be out there or completely lying. Um, because I'll guarantee you, all my mates have definitely described moments where we've been thinking, this is it. you know, uh, I'm not kidding you. So mm. I'm not being just dramatic. I've been in racing cars often enough where something's gone slightly wrong and you've got a very small moment in time to either correct it or a very small moment in time to be very lucky. Um, so it is... It's part of our sport, it's part of our life,
0: sure, and death, of course, as we've mm. seen with many drivers, or
1: very serious injury, you know. Yeah. 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 So, how do you do it? How do you compress the fear? What do you do? It's confidence. Um, you know, I, I, you know, believe that I've got the talent to keep it on track. Um, so I'm not clear that I'm mastering fear. To be quite honest, is that I believe that using what the, the using the car I've got that I am that I actually believe I can take the car to the limits that I'm taking it to, and I sometimes believe that the car's still got somewhere to go, and I've been a complete Nancy and and wussed out and the, no, no, come on you coward there's maybe a little bit more in it that you could have just nailed another one through that corner, another half attempt through that corner or whatever so I guess that leads me back to um, me the, I'm not completely clear how competitive I've ever been with any other driver, because to me I've never really been worried about that many of them uh Johnny Herbert and John Lacy I thought were you know quite brilliant talents obviously we've seen what Damon managed to achieve so all my little pack are all terribly special but for me the limiting factor was me Mm -hmm. what can I do don't worry about what they're doing if they've gone faster right can I go faster me and that's all I ever saw and I think it's probably because of that 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 attitude that I rather hope this is a good thing is that I've never ever been a jealous person um i've never looked at anybody and thought oh you lucky what's your you lucky so and so but just think well no you you make your own future you dig in you go harder perry don't worry about them for sure you know? that's a
0: great attitude okay so what was your first super fast single seater car and what did the first few laps feel like
1: I don't know which one you call super fast because coming from the road to get, you know, when I was a kid to get in a Formula Ford, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is like amazing. And the Mm -hmm. Formula Ford, of course, is, you know, by our standards, way down the food chain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, each experience of moving up, you're going, Jesus, this is incredible. I remember stepping from Formula Ford to Formula 3 and Formula 3, I'm thinking i had been strapped to the back of an Exocet. And yeah, I'm yeah. thinking, this is amazing. But then, of course, you get your head around it, and you go, okay, I'm a racing driver, and I, I'm now getting faster and faster, and I can, I'm now faster than this. And then going into international Formula 3000, wow, that was fantastic. Those yeah. cars were really great. Um, and they, that was in a time when we were getting a lot of drivers hurt, mm-hmm. because yep. it was war out there. You know, We were one step away from F1 and so everybody's really trying and then of course you get into an f1 and you go yeah i'm home this is
0: what it's all about
1: um of this course, is
0: michael schumacher's benison of course
1: well even my own i mean you know my first formula one car was the arrows uh that i was testing for mm-hmm. and then and i got picked for that because of what was happening with me in the states it was you know It was David and Goliath in the States, and I was giving the major manufacturers something to think about in a kind of little two and sixpence car. So that was fantastic for me. But so then coming into Formula One, but yeah, F1, I I knew, absolutely knew, all the way through my career um, that Formula One was where I was supposed to be. Um, Because I, you know, I just felt that um, I would have the complete confidence to to take one to the absolute limit, because that's what I was designed to do. Okay. And tell jokes.
0: (laughs) Okay, but not at the same time, of course.
1: (laughs) You'll be surprised, actually, because we were on uh, a yellow flag period behind a safety car at Le Mans, and over the radio, I did decide to keep the team awake by telling them a string of jokes while (laughs) I was on track. They did ask me to stop and concentrate, but,
0: you know. Yes, I can imagine. Okay, now tell me
1: about... Andrea Sassetti Andrea
0: Moda Well that's the end of part two but it's not the end of this interview with Perry McCarthy the original stick from BBC's Top Gear In part three Perry talks about his life in Formula One how he was awarded his Formula One Super Licence and then the same day, it was taken away from him. He then explains how he had to fight to get it back. Oh my goodness me, it is an emotional roller coaster. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please hit the follow button and make sure you don't miss a single episode. And of course, we like as you to share. It really does make a huge difference because without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead and click those buttons right now. I'm always searching for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at jeff-smith.com. I'd really love to hear from you. Well, that's all from me. I look forward to meeting you again on part three with The Stig. And thank you again for listening. Have a great day.